and this particular Sunday was going to fall on Father's Day. And at first, that made me just a little bit nervous um, um, about what to talk about. Uh, but then I realized something. Uh, since this is Father's Day, uh, a couple weeks back, I realized something and I told my wife. I could tell a dad joke. <laughs> but I, I mentioned this to our small group, and someone mentioned they saw a shirt that says, Dad jokes? Don't you mean rad jokes? Like this one. <laughs> and so... Um, uh, uh, I don't know if I should share a dad joke or spare you all from a dad joke. Uh, I, think I'll, I think I'll spare you all, and I won't do that. So. But on a more serious note, though, I, I was thinking there has to be something that could be a part of our series, Kingdom Come, that might also fit well with Father's Day. And, and of course, this wouldn't be something about us as fathers, human fathers. It would be about our Heavenly Father. And so I continued thinking through some ideas that I thought might fit the bill, and I landed on a verse from Luke chapter 12. So if you want to flip there, that's where we're going to be this morning, in Luke chapter 12. Uh, if you have your physical Bible or if you have it on a, 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 an app or a, one of your electronic devices. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And so uh, uh, I, I wanted to come up with a clever title, and I'm not that great at titles, but I decided to call this sermon The Kingdom Giver, uh, based on this verse that we're going to uh, get to in a few minutes. Uh, last week, Pastor Dean's sermon was about how kingdom living is different than religious living, if you remember. His text was from Matthew chapter 5, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. In our passage today from Luke chapter 12, you might notice parts of the passage in Luke are almost word-for-word word identical to parts of the passage from last week from Matthew. And this is interesting. It, can, it shows continuity, I think, between the gospel writers themselves, uh, what they're sharing about the teachings of Jesus. But we also see how the different writers of the gospels um, approach these teachings differently. This is not to say they would disagree with what Jesus taught, not at all. Uh, but these men are writing to different audiences, and they each have different approaches as to how they tell their story. Uh, just like you and I would most likely tell a story that we heard a little bit differently, each of us. Uh, or share our view of something uh, that we witnessed in a different way. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 22, going through verse 32 this morning. And uh, I'll read our passage for today if you want to read with me. Luke 12, 22 through 32. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, 
and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. This is our passage today from God's Word. But I want to note that my focus will really be building into that last verse from this passage, verse 32. As Luke begins this part of his gospel, he notes that Jesus begins teaching with the word, therefore. And there's something I learned years ago about studying the Scriptures, and I think it still applies today, and maybe you've heard this. But it says, whenever there's a therefore, look to see what it's there for. (laughs) Uh, It's just a good reminder for us, I think. And this section of Luke often has that heading of uh, do not worry associated with it. In your study Bible or a section uh, uh, above your text, it might say do not worry. If we look back into earlier parts of this chapter, even before the passage I read, we can decipher some things that are being pointed out by Luke and by Jesus that we tend to worry about. I saw them. I know I tend to worry about these things. I'm a worrier. Luke 12 points to a few things that we're prone to fear, and I just want to point them out. Uh, First, in verse 4, and we didn't read all of these, but in setting the context, in verse 4, Jesus implies that we are prone to fear death. Not just death in general, but in this particular case, as he's talking to his disciples, death by persecution. Next, in verse 11, Jesus implies that we're prone to fear public shame. We get anxious and afraid about what others are going to think of us when we're in front of them and have to come up with an answer for something, in particular about Jesus or about God. So we fear public shame. Third, in verse 22, Jesus implies that we're prone to worry about whether our basic physical needs will be met. Things like food and drink, clothing, shelter. We worry about these things. In each case, Jesus is also giving reasons why his friends, his disciples, his flock do not need to fear these things. Because Jesus does not want us to fear. Jesus does not want us to fear. And so he says a few things in response to these. He says death is not the worst thing. Hell is. And God will keep you out of hell. But also God will care for you with detailed tenderness. God even knows the hairs on your head. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in that hour of public testing. You're not going to be left alone. God's Spirit is with you. He says your Father knows your daily needs and is much more inclined to give you what you need than He is to feed the birds and clothe the flowers. These are some of the things that Jesus says because Jesus does not want us to fear. Jesus doesn't want us to fear. Not death, not shame, not poverty. None of those things. Not death, not shame, not poverty. He wants us to see that God is the kind of God whose people do not need to fear. But there's something else, I think, that we're prone to fear. And and it's possibly a deeper fear, and it lies behind all of these other ones. And in one sense, I think Jesus is trying to eliminate the fear of God himself. Jesus does not want us to fear God in the sense we're talking about today. I think biblically we are supposed to have a reverential fear of God, of who He is, and an awe of Him. But that's not what I'm getting at here today. Jesus doesn't want us to fear God. 
we tend to fear or to have this fear that God doesn't want to be gracious to us, that God doesn't want to help us or bless us. We fear that God doesn't want to be generous to us. And we're prone to think of God as somebody who's basically irked with us or upset with us or angry with us. Sometimes even if we believe in our heads that God is good and even good to us, we might feel in his hearts that his goodness is somehow forced. We think he's being good to me because he has to. And so here in Luke 12, I think Jesus is progressing through these common fears, building all the way up to verse 28 of our passage, working through these things to alleviate our fears. Then in verses 29 through 31, after talking about fears, Jesus moves beyond worries into discussing the setting of the heart, where our hearts are. And he builds towards telling his disciples what it is that we're supposed to be seeking. It's also in this part of our passage where Luke records that Jesus, while talking to his disciples, refers to God as their father. Their father. Jesus wants us to see God as our father. I think that's very clear from this passage and from others. Jesus wants us to see God as our father. And this freedom to address the sovereign God of the universe as our father probably sounded radical to first century believers. This was very different and very new. Nobody was qualified to address God as father except the son. And now those whom he granted access. I think there's something to understand a little bit about the fatherhood of God. I know not all of us have had fathers who pattern their lives after God. And so the word father may not be full of peace the way it is for some people, the way Jesus means it to be. But I'd like to try to fill the word father with at least some of the meaning that Jesus intended for it to have. And so I think there's probably many things to note, but I think we're going to note two things this morning about this idea. Because Jesus wants us to see God as our father, if the king is our father then the first thing to note is that we are heirs. That's H-E-I-R-S, not heir, A-I-R. But we are heirs, heirs of his kingdom. And as an heir, there's something natural about our receiving it because it's an inheritance. It's totally the way it should be. In Matthew 25, verse 34, we read this. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. God has prepared a kingdom for his children, and it's theirs by right of inheritance. That's at least one thing to note, that we're heirs. And second, if, if the king is our father, then we are free. Now, tra track with me for just a minute. This one may seem a little odd at first. Free from what, you might ask? Well, free from being taxed, if you want to put one word on it. And again, that sounds weird, I know. But in Matthew 17, there was a brief discussion between Jesus and Peter about who the kings of the earth collect their taxes from. Is it from their own children or is it from others? And Peter's answer in that passage was from others. And the reply of Jesus is very interesting 
Because Jesus follows up by saying, then the children are exempt. God doesn't have those requirements against his own children. God doesn't levy taxes against his own children. There's no fees. We don't have that burden. It's those outside the family of God that feel that burden, not the children within. And for God's children then, it's a freedom thing. It's free. So God as our father, I think, also means a certain type of freedom. Freedom from the burden of a debt or a tax or a fee or whatever else you want to call it. He's our father. And I think it's good to remember that. Not just this day, Father's Day, but all days. He also said in Matthew 7, verse 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And why are all these ideas important? Because I'm supposed to be about his kingdom, not mine or anyone else's. This is where that passage is building to. This is where that teaching of Jesus is building to. You see, it's not about me trying to construct a kingdom and put my hope in this idea that I can build the world of my own dreams. And what God does is he invades my self-oriented kingdom because even for me, it is. (laughs) I make it about me quite easily. He invades my self-oriented kingdom and he transports me to the kingdom of his son. Colossians 1.13 tells us, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Again, that's Colossians 1.13. Uh, an amazing verse. And as a new creature in Christ, I'm now a citizen of that grand and glorious kingdom of God where all the treasures worth living for, they've now been given to me. E- even though I never could have done anything to earn them or buy them. So I don't have to demand the temporary treasures of my own kingdom of one anymore. I'm now a part of a new kingdom, a much better kingdom. And you and I don't have to be king anymore. The king has come. And we should be living for his kingdom. Now Matthew's account of these same words says this, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. That's Matthew 6.33. Again, almost word for word what Luke is quoting from Jesus. Probably a very familiar verse. The reason I mention Matthew's version of that is I like one little word he has in there. I like that Matthew includes the word first. Because the word first not only establishes priority, it also indicates kind of a singular focus. All of life is lived with the kingdom in view. And here in Luke 12, verse 31, the word seek, it's what gets called a a present imperative. And what that means is it's kind of a command, but it's a command to fulfill a continuing or ongoing obligation in the present tense. This is something we're continually to be doing. And to seek the kingdom means to seek his rule and his reign in our hearts and in the world. Seeking the kingdom of God means making Jesus Lord and King of your life. He must control every area. Your work, your play, your money, your plans, your family, your relationships, everything. 
So here's a question, just a food for thought question. Is the kingdom only one of your many concerns? Or is it central to all that you do? Because Jesus says to seek his kingdom. And this kingdom, his kingdom, it's worth seeking. Because one day, the Father, he's going to give it to you. To anybody who faithfully follows him, that's what this verse we're getting at is talking about. Fear and worry, those are going to be constant companions to anybody who spends their life trying to get or achieve or protect what they have. But those whose treasure is in heaven will be secure. And I hope you know that God wants to give you the kingdom. He does. The Father wants to give us the kingdom. That's this next point. And because, because now we arrive at what comes next in Luke's account here in verse 32. The Father wants to give us the kingdom. The verse reads, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And this verse, verse 32, it's worth looking into a little bit. It begins with, do not be afraid. So this whole passage that we have is kind of rounded out again at the end with this idea of, of not being afraid. One pastor that I read once wrote this. If you were to ask the average person what prohibition is found more than any other in Scripture, you would most likely hear responses like these. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't lust. Don't covet. These are all good guesses, but the actual answer might surprise you. More than any other prohibition in Scripture, God reminds us again and again, don't be afraid. It's very interesting. And this is where the verse begins, verse 32, don't be afraid. Next, it says little flock. Do you remember being little? I remember one time when I was little, I hurt my hand at school on the playground, playing ball, I was maybe fourth or fifth grade, elementary school, and we didn't know if the finger was dislocated or broken or what, and, and my dad came to get me from school and take me to the doctor, and I won't go into too many details other than I'll say the, the index finger on my right hand was kind of bent up the wrong way about halfway down the finger, um, and they needed to do an x-ray to check it out, and this was in the time when they, they did the x-ray, and then you had to wait like an hour or an hour and a half before they would get the results. So I was just waiting with my dad at the, I think it was a hospital. We had to go like to an ER. But, but you know what I remember about the waiting? I was thinking about this. A dad joke. <laughs> or, or more of a comment, really. Because my dad, while we were sitting there, was trying to, to cheer me up, uh, was trying to make me laugh. And, and he said, uh, hey, hey, look on the bright side. Now you can point around corners. Uh, <laughs> That's my dad. It turns out the finger was just dislocated. It wasn't broken. And the doctor had to reset it and tape it up and send us on our way. But you know what? As I think about that, that was my dad. But because I was one of his little ones, I'm the youngest of three, and, and he came to take care of me. And here, Luke recalls that Jesus uses this phrase, little flock, like a flock of sheep. And the idea of, the, of a flock, it pictures both their helplessness but also his protection as the good shepherd. The word little implies that God's goodness to us is not dependent 
on our greatness. <laughs> Thank the Lord, right? We are a little flock in so many ways. Little in size, little in strength, little in wisdom, little in righteousness, little in love. If God's goodness to us depended on our greatness, we'd be in huge trouble. <laughs> but that's the point here. It doesn't, so we aren't. God's goodness is not dependent on our greatness. The next couple of phrases in verse 32 I, I think are also important. Your father and the word pleased. We've already talked a little bit about the idea of God as the heavenly father. I don't want to belabor that point. But what about pleased? This is interesting. It pleases God to bless his children. God wants to give gifts to his children. I want to give gifts to my children too. Sometimes I may not have the means to do it, but I want to. The desire is there. Scripture tells us in James 1 verse 17 that every good and perfect gift comes down from, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Father of lights, from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And for God, not only does He want to, our verse is saying, He delights in doing this. Not only does God promise to give His children, but He's pleased to give to His children. As I thought about this, preparing for this message, I began thinking maybe it would serve me well to think bigger than myself and, and to think about, really think about what it is that God has done for me, what it is my Heavenly Father has done for me. I never really knew how hard it is to be a father until I had children of my own. And by God's grace, I'm a father of three amazing kids. And I want the world for them. There are so many things that I want to give them and do for them. And again, I realize I may not always be able to or have the means to, but that desire is there. But on the flip side, there's also so many things that I want to protect them from. And yet, there are so many things that I know I won't be able to protect them from. From pains and heartaches and hurt feelings, strained relationships, and the list goes on. I don't want to see them hurting, especially if there's something that I can do about it. <laughs> I'm a doer. <laughs> uh, I, I got a glimpse of this when our youngest son was five years old. When Logan was five, in kindergarten, he fell off the apparatus at school one day and he hurt his arm. And uh, we got the call towards the end of the day. My wife was already on the way to school to pick up the kids. It was towards the end of the day. But I met them at the ER and he had broken his elbow, is what they said. Uh, not technically your elbow, I guess right above the elbow. But um, this was on a Friday afternoon. So we had to wait until after the weekend, until the beginning of the week, to go see uh, the orthopedic doctor they wanted us to go see, uh, to discern how bad it was, what kind of treatment might be needed, and all that. Here's a picture of Logan at the doctor's office. After that weekend, waiting for the doctor to come into that appointment. Well, it was a clean break, just above the elbow. It did not need surgery, um, but it was going to need to be reset. The doctor explained there were a couple of options, and he thought the best and the simplest was to do it right then in the office before we went anywhere, home. Um, he was also an orthopedic surgeon, and so we trusted his opinion. 
Uh, but ultimately, it was up to my wife and I. And we decided to go ahead and have him take care of it right then and there in the office, just the way he talked about. Now, he was very gracious. Uh, he was very informative. He was really good with kids, really was. And he explained everything exactly as it would be to both us and to Logan, including how short he thought it would take, about five or six seconds, but also how much pain there would be. I've thought about this many times since then. This was the most pain that our little Logan has probably ever experienced. This was the most painful thing that I have ever had to watch because I myself couldn't do anything to help my son, not, a, not in this situation. I also don't do well in medical emergencies, generally speaking. <laughs> but it's not about me. Um, but I've also thought about this one. That day, in that office, I had to make the choice to give the doctor permission to hurt my son, knowing that's what it would take to heal him. And I cannot even imagine what it must have been like for God to send his son to the cross. I, I, can't, I can't fathom this. It, it doesn't calculate. There's nothing in my mind that correlates these ideas together. But that is what our Heavenly Father has done for us. God doesn't want anyone to hurt. That's not His desire. He doesn't want people to remain broken. He doesn't want to give pain to His children because they're His little ones. He wants to give gifts. And He has some pretty good ones in mind. And He wants to be generous. And according to Luke, He wants to give His children the kingdom the kingdom of God is quite possibly the greatest gift one can receive and maybe even the highest priority in life if Jesus says that's what we're to seek after, his kingdom. God is the kingdom giver. But it seems like Luke is saying, for lack of a better way of phrasing this, there's a prerequisite involved in all of this. To seek his kingdom. You see, I have to get over my kingdom of one. It's not about me building my thing in my own way. What Jesus calls for here, it's countercultural for our modern world because for most people, living is defined by what they can get for themselves to make life comfortable, secure. And whether we think of our home as a nest or a castle, we desire to build a safe, private world. This is one of the most fundamental values in our modern culture today. And we have a philosophy of what we think we're entitled to as kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. But God wants his followers to trust his care and rest in his hand. And he wants followers that are doing what he has called them to do rather than pursuing their own kingdoms. This is not easy. And our vantage point from our own life and experiences make it even harder. They do. There's a page I want to share from one of the devotional books that I have. I think this speaks to the issues we have been talking about today. I do want to preface this by letting you know that the progression of thought on this one page, and it is only one page, it seems to go from bad to worse. But please hang in there till the end. This is a book called New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. 
And he writes, don't give way to discouragement, feelings of futility, or waves of fear. Because the Father has graciously chosen to give you the kingdom. There are so many reasons to be discouraged in this fallen world. It's a wonder that anyone is happy. It's discouraging to watch your marriage turn cold and distant. It's disheartening to be betrayed by a dear friend. It's disappointing to lose the job you worked at with such commitment. It's depressing to face a sickness that you're not sure you'll ever lick. It's hard to face the rebellion and rejection of one of your children. It's discouraging to hear so often about corruption in politics and government. It's disheartening to have to be concerned about crime and injustice. It's tough to deal with the weakness of old age. It's hard to be mocked and rejected for your faith. It's sad to see your church become more a place of controversy than gospel healing. It can seem as if everything in your life is in the process of decaying or in danger of going bad. People die, dreams die, flowers die, and marriages, churches, jobs, and friendships go bad. If you look around, this old world that God created isn't doing very well. In many ways, it's a hard, discouraging place to live. The downward spiral of the fallen world can get to you. It seems that everything is impermanent or in the process of falling apart. But that's not all that's discouraging. It often seems as if you're powerless to make much of a change. You do everything you can to restore your marriage, but it just seems stuck. You know you don't have the power to change other people, and you have limited power to change situations. It so often seems that you're a witness to or affected by things you have little ability to alter. So where is encouragement to be found? It's found in grace, as depicted by these beautiful words. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. With these words, everything changes. These words tell you it's not you against a world gone bad. Yes, you are a citizen of this world and you are touched by its brokenness. But as you are, you must remind yourself that you are the citizen of another kingdom. Your king rules over everything that would discourage and disappoint you. And he rules for your good and your glory. His glory, excuse me. What is out of your control is under his rule. What you don't understand is under his careful administration. But there's more. While everything around you seems impermanent, this kingdom will have no end. Long after the kingdoms of this world have been destroyed, you will reign with your king in his kingdom forever and ever and ever. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32, it's a verse about the nature of God. It's a verse about the kind of heart that God has. It's a verse about what makes God glad. Not merely about what God will do, but what He delights to do, what He loves to do, what He takes pleasure in doing. That's the kind of God He is. That's the kind of Father He is. And it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Note that He doesn't say, sell you the kingdom. He doesn't say, trade you the kingdom. He says, give you the kingdom. He's the kingdom giver. 
It can't be bought or traded for or bartered for or earned in any way. There's only one way to have it, and it's the easiest way ever, the gospel way. God's not stingy. He's not a Scrooge. He's not miserly. He's not holding it all in for himself. He's liberal and generous and bountiful. And it's his good pleasure, pleasure excuse me, to give us the kingdom. He doesn't prom- promise money or popularity or fame among men, at least not on this earth. He doesn't even promise security in this life. What he does promise is that if you seek his kingdom, you're going to find it because he's going to give it to you. He's the only one who can. He's the only kingdom giver.